This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop shank. off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome seven-time PGA Tour winner and major champion Mark Brooks to the Sub-70 Podcast. Pro, thanks for doing this today. Been looking forward to the conversation. Well, you you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's so, I mean, like when I was doing the, the outline for this, there's so much to talk about. Like you've seen so much, you know, in your career. Um, we'll get there, but I, I, I'm really kind of fascinated what you're doing with the 803 and for the... For the listeners who might not know what the concept is, you know, what does that business entail? How did you guys start it? What's the philosophy behind it? Well, I, you know, playing so many events in my career, that's where the 803 came from. I actually played in 803 regular official PGA Tour events. So that's that's where the name was derived from. I really didn't want my my, my name on the, on the deal, per se. And uh, I've got a team that works with us. But it... it the genesis came from me playing in so many pro-ams and the pro-am experience. Now, some of the pro-am experiences obviously are awesome. And, you know, playing with me and getting the instruction from me, having dinner with me, being able to ask me any question you want in private is, I think, quite unique. Uh, and I just felt like, you know, we could kind of build off that experience. And we're fortunate enough at UT Golf Club here in Austin, which is a fantastic facility and a great partner, to be able to bring that experience to a private facility that's really, really world-class and just let the guys have, you know, anywhere from one to, you know, two and a half days, basically, of uh, the enhanced, you know, the ultimate pro-am experience. Yeah, hands-on. That's, yeah, you you working with the guys. I'm assuming there's, like, some team building, stuff like that you can do for a corporate standpoint. I mean, it's probably is it like kind of customizable, whatever the experience that customer wants to to bring some clients down or a group of guys. That's correct. It could be anywhere from a buddy's trip, girl's trip to, you know, corporate entertaining, corporate rewarding or corporate team building. It's, you know, I think what's unique to ours is that it's very customizable. I mean, we can go all the way to, if you wanted to, you know, outfit your group and, you know, new drivers, new wedges, a new putter. Um, we can do all that here as well to enhance the experience. So you can, and you can make it, let's just say you can make it, you know, some guys may want to come in and, and get certainly get some instruction and knowledge and have a great time with the dinners and the fireside chats, but they may want to have a little competition too. So we'll accommodate any, any requests. So it can be as uh, competitive centric as you want or as casual or as instruction centric. So, you know, and, and you were right, you brought it up. I mean, I, I'm with them pretty much the whole time. I'm not going to, I don't go to, sleep in the same house but uh, or same casita but uh i'm with them the whole time our team is and that's probably the difference i don't just show up and shake their hand you know give them an hour clinic and then walk away so yeah. i'm i'm with them i'm, I'm immersed with the, the deal most of the clients are you, when you when you sit around and talk to them after the round of golf or you're sitting by the the fire with a cocktail do they ask is it more you know to the, the elite level of where you played at for all those years do they ask more questions on the mental side of stuff or do you find more questions on golf swing, that sort of thing. Like, is there anything that surprised you from sitting down with all these guys having these conversations? Well, when you, you know, because the environment allows you to do a little more deep diving, you know, it's, I think it, it definitely starts leaning more towards, well, besides the, you know, 
interesting experiences. How many times, you know, playing, what's it like playing with Tiger or Jack Nicholas or, you know, even a Phil Mickelson for that matter. Um, those, those are the kind of things that, that come up. And I'd say it definitely starts leaning towards the, you know, how'd you, how'd you do it? I mean, how'd you fight through all that? Because there's a lot of ups, ups and downs. And, you know, the beauty of golf is we all know that we've played it for most of our lives, know all too well. It is a incredibly humbling experience. So even the cockiest salesman you got is going to get humbled out there. And uh, it, it's great to bring people all to, you know, I would call it ground zero. So everybody is on equal footing. Yeah, what a cool experience for the customers or clients or, like I said, you know, to be able to sit down with a major champion and just sort of say, how'd you do it? You know, what was the high points? What was it all like? Like, you've seen it all, which would make it, you know, a very unique, cool experience. What a cool concept for a company. I love it. Well, thank you. Um, we're going to get to the, the playing part of it, but, I, you know, the 803. I, I mean, I knew you played in a lot of events, but the, when you add them up between the Champions Tour and the PGA Tour, you're over a thousand events. Is that? I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I, I mean, crazy in a good way. I don't think like, you're not going to see that from the new generation of golfers. No way. No way they get a no, thousand I events. No, I doubt. I doubt that. I mean, there, there's a couple of guys that that could you know sneak up there on me. Davis Love the thirds. You know, I think he's under. You know, like he's within like 20 of me. But uh, you know, I'm not changing the name, and I'm not gonna. I don't plan on playing anymore. So that's that's my number, and uh, it's kind of a unique number and i'll give you the map because you know a lot of the kids I'm, i've been out there a lot I've, I've been fortunate enough to not only has my career spanned all the way from a competitive jack nicholas lee trevino the curtis stranges i mean it just goes on and on calvin Peake. there's so many names that people forgot about that were fantastic players for periods of time and I got to play with those guys as well as this a lot of this new generation. Not not all of them, but you know, the, from Ricky Fowler's to, you know, I played I played quite a bit of golf, tournament golf with Tiger Woods. Uh, I won my major championship this, in the summer that Tiger turned professional. So I, I got fortunate enough occasionally to get paired with him on Thursdays and Fridays. You know, at, at following events. So. I've gotten to play on tour with, you know, our, the two, you know, goats of our game. And it's just, you know, I, I was going to give you the map. I'll give it to you. Because the, the kids, you know, I'm out caddying for a friend on tour or working with somebody, you know, they may hear that 803 number and it doesn't really stick. And then, you know, maybe five or ten minutes later, here comes somebody down. Maybe it's a caddy. He says, you played in how many tournaments? And then you do the math and – I said, it's real easy because these guys, you know, 25 is a pretty good number. And it ta- it'll only take you 32 years to get to 800 if you play 25 a year. So if you're 25 years old, you can do the math. You'll be 57. Right. You'll be 57 when you get there. So God. it's uh, – and then you'll have to play four more to pass me. So it's 32 years at 25 a year. And I don't even know how I did it, to be honest with you. It's just – you know, it's what I did. Uh, you know, many of those early years, you're fighting to keep your card. So you're playing every single week the last, you know, whatever, two, three months of the year. You're just like, you don't feel like you can go home because you never know when you're going to, you know, put a good number on the board and secure your card. So some of those events were out of desperation. Some of them were because I wanted to play. Well, and I don't think, I mean, I, they, they, I don't think as hard as they're swinging these days, they're, they're, the body's not going to hold up it. Even in your late 40s, mid 40s, you know, they're going to be. 
I don't know how many of those guys are going to be left going in as hard as they go, which is fine, right? They're going to make plenty of money and they're going to they're going to get their wins and they're going to do their thing. But the, the longevity that you had, I just don't. I just don't. Yeah, you know, there'll be some outliers, but I don't think most of the guys are going to be playing nearly that many events. I don't know if their bodies could hold up for it for as hard as they're well, going at it. it. It's interesting you bring up the you know the injury thing. You know, we always we were getting injured. We, let's just I, I will say this: we didn't swing obviously near near the speeds. We had we had fast and, and long guys, but the equipment honestly didn't allow guys to to swing as hard as they could. The, the golf ball was far uh, had far more spin, and it was less aerodynamically stable meaning it, if it was you know hit really hard with you know two or three degree open club face add a bad pass to that man you could hit it 70 80 100 yards offline and guys did and so they learned pretty quickly that they had to self-throttle is the word i use that's the term i like to use they self-throttled and you know they ended up playing heavier shafts they played lower lofted drivers they hit it lower they couldn't put the ball in the sky if it was you know they had to keep it under control and uh i mean guys like phil blackmar who's you know six seven and you know could swing as fast as anybody out there today if he wanted to but the equipment didn't allow it and you know that that was part of the game um oh absolutely right i I mean well let me go on and i lost my train of thought for a second there but i will i'll tell you this on the injury front we got injured guys got injured i mean i played with broken ribs broken toes uh, herniated discs, you know, partially torn, you know, labrum. I mean, you name it. We guys tended to play longer hurt. Now, whether that's good or bad, it's not. It's you know, I'm not going to argue that point, but I'm going to say guys ha- have more knowledge now. They're in better shape, probably. Honestly, let's just face the facts. They're you know, starting in, you know, in their teens. They're they're in, let's just say, controlled workout environments. Right. Uh, getting a little stronger a little earlier and bigger kids swing the club faster there's no doubt about that but they don't play hurt as much so we played hurt so of those 803 i probably you know 20 percent of them i probably had some physical ailment going on that in today's world you you might not play so uh there's no doubt that's changed and that's pretty true across all sports. So it's like if you're not 100% or 99%, well let's, let's you know, let's stay home. We didn't have that attitude back then. I'm talking from the top down. It was you know, if you could physically walk around and you could swing a golf club, you put the tee in the ground and you hit it and got the best score you could that day and you know, swallowed your Advil or asked whatever you could take back then. I mean, the horse liniments, we we did it all. So yeah, um, well, different it's a, generation. It's a different mind. Yeah, yeah, different. No, Ray, no Floyd, Ray Floyd was not going to sit on the sideline because something was quote unquote alien them, right? Those guys rolled hard asses. I will say this: a lot of us put our, we put ourselves through you know our own boot camps, you know, training routines. I'm talking about from hitting ball, hitting balls, and you know, to your hands are bleeding and. Uh, that today you'd you'd be in jail if you had your kid, you know, even close to doing something like we we put ourselves through. Uh, healthy, maybe not. Mentally, make you mentally tougher. Darn right. Yeah. So uh, I, I think a lot of us got tough. You know, we played, but you, you, it just goes on and on. The, the subjects are endless. Uh, course conditions. I mean, you know, it, things were not pristine in the, you know, I grew up in the seventies and, you know, eighties through early eighties in college. And 
I mean, the courses these kids now play in college, for example, at a re- pretty decent D1 program are incredible. I mean, we were honestly playing a lot of, and no offense to anyone, because I, I grew up on it and love it, but we were playing pretty hardcore muni golf and, you know, bad lies. Uh, obviously, the time of year you're playing in some pretty rough weather with golf that people don't realize, you know, you're playing in the early fall and then you're playing in early spring and golf courses aren't ready yet, but we played some junk, and I think in the long run it made us way better, to be honest with you, and tougher. Yeah, it's kind of like how the guys would kind of back in the day, or yeah, you'd still see a little bit now, going over to the European tour and kind of learning how to travel, and golf courses are different. They're not all the same and probably not as good as the PGA Tour condition-wise week in, week out, right? And kind of just learn what, learn how to get the ball That's in the hole. Tough conditions, right. traveling yeah. harder, just a tougher lifestyle. And I loved it when the guys would kind of, well, your generation did a lot of that when guys would kind of go play all over the world if they weren't on the PGA Tour to Flacabote would kind of go out there and figure it out, right? How good can you be? That's true. No no doubt. You know, guys would go to, you know, they'd go play in Asia and putt on what was back then, what was called a lot of greens over there were called Cori, and it was just, it was like putting on a, a bristle pad uh, that didn't have smooth bristles. Uh, weather, Europe, Europe deals with rougher weather, no doubt about that. You know, they, what it what it does, you go, well, what does all that do? What did it do? And I would say it teaches the kids, you know, whatever, mental toughness, yes, uh, separate the, the, you know, the, the meek and weak from the strong. But it also made thereby the kids learn how to be more prepared, including, you know, that includes your equipment. I mean, you know how many guys, kids, even tour guys almost show up like with no umbrella or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Barely a t- barely a towel, and you know it's a sixty percent chance of rain. Fortunately, on the tour, you got caddies and you have you know entourages that can run get you whatever you need. But my point is, it's amazing to me how many times I'll show up at even these elite junior events, and these kids just aren't prepared. I don't mean their golf game; they, their bags aren't prepared for you know the, the weather conditions that could change. So it's it's pretty interesting, and that's what you know you had to learn, and you had to. We learned it the hard way. I mean, you'd show up out there, and we had to be coming sideways. You're in a short sleeve shirt, with northern blue in. The next thing you know, it's 45 degrees and raining sideways, and you don't have a sweater or an umbrella. You're in trouble, pal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you're in trouble. You're in deep, 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 deep doo doo. Yeah, so. it's a, it was a different generation uh, for sure, right? Like, in, like, well, I'm going to get in. Like, you're making my my job here easy because we're definitely going to get into some of the characters back in the day. From I think your career is so interesting. So actually, I was going to bring that up, and we'll talk about it in a second. Of you know, you played with Nicholas when he was still really good, and Tiger, and all these guys in between. So uh, we'll get there. But I have one last question about like still playing. Like, do you, do you miss playing the Champions Tour and the competition and preparing? I know you're not out there any longer. One or two events every now and then. Are you still exempt if you want to play? Well, I would be. I guess the term would be conditionally exempt. Would be fair. I I could like. I could be in Morocco this week, but I, I've had, I honestly have had some eye trouble and, uh, that I'm going to get fixed here hopefully soon, but, uh, I could play, I don't know how many, it varies probably eight, you know, eight to 10 a year. Uh, I, I don't plan on that. I mean, maybe a few, uh, just to, you know, remind myself why I don't go out there. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 61, I'll be 62 in March and, uh, you know, I hit the ball fine for, I'll probably swing better today than I did, you know, just messing around here. But I, I don't, I can't play because I, right now I'm looking out of one eye. So it's a little bit awkward on the golf course. But, 
I do not really miss the traveling. And to be perfectly honest, which I, I like to be be as honest as possible, and I don't sugarcoat it. I didn't play great on the Champions Tour, and I, I didn't have the same experience that a lot of guys have, where you come out and immediately, you know, kill it. Uh, I, I had a few real good chances to win early my first few years, and it just became it was like a continuation of the grind that the last let's just say five years or seven years on the regular tour when you're you know let's just say beyond your best uh, so probably didn't have the mi- right mindset uh going out there and i did not play great on the champions tour I-, I had some good tournaments of course uh enjoyed being around some of the guys that uh, i'd played many many years with but it- it's a different experience and-, and no knock to the champions tour and, and again i'm gonna be honest you know, there's a lot of events that are fantastic events on that tour, but it's not the show. And when you've been in the show for 27 years, you know, it'd be like a guy playing, honestly, like playing in the, you know, I hate to use the other sports, but we will. You've been playing in, you know, a big, big arena. And the next thing you know, you're in, you're, you know, two or three levels down and you're like, wait a minute, this, there's different energy here. There's, you know, the level of competition is great, but as far as the, the atmosphere, it was different. Let's, I'll be fair. And, you know, we played two pro-ams a week. Uh, you, sometimes you'd play a Monday. So you're playing a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday pro-am. And, you know, it's not that you're worn out, but it's just like it becomes a grind at times. And one other reason I'm not missing it is I'm staying very busy, you know, teaching and doing the 803. I enjoy, you know, doing a little bit of television uh, commentary work. So, I'm staying busy. I feel like I'm almost busier now than I was when I played because all you had to worry about then was really your pro-am time or your tea time on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. And now it's, uh, you know, Monday to Sunday deal. So I'm staying busy. I'm not missing it. And, you know, it's I won't say it's time to step aside and let somebody else go because that's not what the Champions Tour was intended to be. Uh, you know, it's turned turned highly competitive, which I don't think was the, the goal. But uh, anyway, I hope I answered that one. Well, yeah, and I mean, like you said, and if you're not fully mentally well, I was into it or whatever it might be, right? It's I mean, people don't – I mean, I've always said, like, you go shoot 15, 16 under par in three days in some of those tracks. Like, the level of competition is still really, really good. And I can only imagine, like, if you don't have that edge, like you really wanted on the regular tour out there, it it, it makes it hard to compete. You know what I mean? Like, harder to compete because the level of competition is so good still. Like, those guys can really, really play out there, 100%. No, they they really can. And there's a lot of guys that are killing it out there that, uh, you know, honestly don't have (laughs) – they don't have quite as much scar tissue as, as some of us do, so. And I'm not, I'm not talking about men, I'm talking about not physical scar tissue, but that as well as mental scar tissue. So yeah, or the, it's a tough anyway. grind, right? To stay at your very best, the work behind the scenes that takes to be ready to win. It's a lot, right? And I can see where over time, you know, that that flame isn't burning quite as hard because you've kind of accomplished it all. I can I can see where you know a thousand starts is good. You know, there's there's, there's other things in life to versus you know the work and time that that takes. Um, I was going to ask you, and you like said you brought it up, like you, you played with Nicholas, you played with Tiger, and and you also played in your prime where there was, I mean, like golf swings all didn't look the same. Some characters, right? Like, you know, Weisskopf. I mean, the personality. I loved Tom Weisskopf, but, you know, he wasn't cookie cutter. You know, Ray Floyd with that, you know, hard-ass stare. You know, Watson, 
Trevino, like Kurt, like you mentioned, Curtis Strange. Like, is anybody tougher than Curtis Strange on the back nine on a on a Sunday? Like, you played with a really interesting era of 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 between Jack and Tiger, and then all of those guys in between who are just legends as well. Like, what an experience, you know, to, to play for that long and see it all. And what what's sort of your thoughts on the new players versus those guys I kind of brought up? Who you know you could recognize the golf swing from five fairways over and the walk and the stare and all of it. Well, there's so many. I mean, you could talk for five hours about it. Uh, you know, you could ex- you couldn't exhaust the subject. One, you know, you hear repeatedly, and, and these guys are great athletes now, but so were the old group, the 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 majority. There was always the outlier. You know, the guy that didn't look like the athlete by the time he you know was maybe thirty playing the tour, a little overweight. But, you know, if you went back and researched the guy's history, the guy played, you know, might have gone all the way up to, you know, minor league pro baseball, or he played college, played other things all the way through high school. I think there was definitely a tendency for guys to play, come from other sports into golf. And it wasn't just the money, you know, but obviously the popularity matters. Um, So guys didn't play year-round golf until really they got to college, I'm going to say, you know, go, probably guys all the way back, you know, I'm going to say in, into the 80s, I mean, l- maybe late 80s, early 90s, it was not as, I won't say, well, it wasn't as popular a sport in a lot of ways. It was a fantastic sport, but guys played other sports. I mean, they played football or basketball. They usually narrowed it down to a couple, but they only played golf maybe four or five months a year. Uh, and there's still some guys, Gary Woodland's an example where they, you know, he was, there's, there's a handful of them. Even Dustin Johnson played basketball deep. And I think that was, you know, honestly gr- good for the guys as far as, you know, the, not getting so sports specific and golf is so mental that, you know, if you got somebody at, you know, age 10, 11, 12, that is purely golf, man, you got a long road, you know, till you're 30 you know, trying to deal with this game and all the ups and downs that come with it. But I just think guys were, I'm going to say, go on a limb and say a little more well-rounded, you know, as sports-wise, uh, maybe kept the game in perspective longer. Uh, the, I mean, they're recruiting these kids at 13, 14 now for college, and it, it's insane. And so, you know, a lot of them, and I'm around a lot of elite junior players or better junior players. I mean, it's like they have entourages now. You know, I'm talking pretty early, 14, 15. They've got five coaches, five, you know, they've got them all. And I just believe, you know, deep in my soul that a lot of this stuff, if you don't learn it yourself, it, it doesn't stick. It doesn't stick as long. So uh, I think that's a huge difference. Uh, and now, now I'll step forward, and you jump in any time, but – you know, the you'd say, well, why? Why do they all hit it so decent? Well, you know, there's several prongs. I'll highlight number one: video, video, video. Okay, I said it three times. People being able to see their swing and actually see it slow motion, accurately, uh, has really changed. You know, very very quickly how how these kids swing a golf club. My my personal experience. Uh, I didn't really – I don't feel like I became, a, a you know, let's say a, a tour caliber player, honestly, until late 1987, 80, right around 87, 88, when I finally just said I've, I've had enough, I, I, you know, tried it on my own and occasional lesson here and there. 
and went home and, you know, got with my local great player, teach guy that turned teacher, and, you know, we bought it. I don't know if he, he bought it or I bought it, but we got an 8-millimeter camera, and I started doing the filming. And he had a plan of how he thought I should change my golf swing, and I, I bought in. And being able to see my swing, I made – I mean, I've got, you know, I'd have to dig them up, but I made dramatic swing changes in probably, I'm going to say, three months. Was it dramatic. one of those things, too, where you thought it was one way until, was it just eye-opening to see it on film where you're like, oh, shit, that is not where that no club doubt. is at. But it feels there, that, but it that, ain't there. That's correct. So trying to figure out how to turn feels into something that's real is still today a, a, a it's not as big a hurdle because you get to show them. You got the guy says, well, I thought, it, you know, I, I teach all kinds of players and, you know, you've got the guys that, you know, cross the, they point the club, you know, 20 yards right of the target at the top. We caught crossing the you know line and you'll show him up at, you know, where you want him to go. Well, I said, well, don't, why don't you just point that thing at the wall behind you at the top? You know what I mean? Just point it straight back and he'll make a swing and, He'll think he pointed there, and he might have moved from his original position, you know, maybe an inch or two, and he feels like he moved it five feet. Right. So then you show them, and they look at it, and they can't argue with you because it's now even better than empirical data. It's real. And when you see it, and, we, you know, I love having the mirrors there, and, you know, they can, you know, mock their backswing looking at the mirror and go, wow, that is way different than it feels like. And so that's part of it. Show them what to do show them what to do, then they get to feel what they do while they're seeing what they're doing, and they have a better shot at more quickly turning a feel into something real. And you couple that with the ball flight, you know, data that's out there. I'm going to call it's just now the there's so many things that I'm going to say. I'll, I'll steal lots of terms. In the old days, there was a lot of myth and, you know, a lot of, Call, you know, swing theories and things like that. Today, with the launch monitor technology and the ability to track the golf ball, the club face, the shaft, everything that's going on, there are a lot of things that are now what I call non-negotiables, okay? And they're non-negotiables. So when you're with a student and they think they're doing something and they think, well, that's why it's doing that, you can tell them, you can think all you want, but the facts, here are the facts, the physics facts. They're non-negotiable. So you can arrive there different ways, but when you arrive at impact, the moment of truth, it's not going to lie, okay? It, there's no, there's, can't, and so you start doing that, and then you start getting to show video where, where they really are, how they're moving their weight. I mean, it's a joke how much information's out there, and if it's used properly, you can get somebody swinging the golf club pretty darn good, pretty darn fast if they're open-minded and fairly athletically inclined. And I think that it's a long-winded way of going about I think it's why you see so many swings so similar now. They're, they're doing it right. Let's just put it that way. The good teachers out there, I hope someday to be considered one, are all teaching very similar things. If they're not, they're probably off base. So there's different ways to get guys to do certain things, okay? You know you know what I'm saying? There's different methods yes. to the madness. But the madness is going to end up in the same place, including setup, posture, structure, you know, how you move your weight, 
how you become dynamic, uh, and, and then how you deliver the golf club to the golf ball. Those are non-negotiable. Those, how you, that, you know, last. And it's crazy to think too, like you were, you had your card and you had to kind of go relearn. Like now that's done at, like you're saying, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. You were an exempt tour player grinding and had to go do that at that point. And now it's done so much earlier, right? Where you start to see those things. Right. I'd hit a wall, but you know what I, you know, what I brought out of those first, let's say that was four or five years on tour. So four years of college, you know, I've been playing pretty high level golf for, you know, a dozen years. I mean, go back to amateur, a little bit of amateur golf there. And you're like, was it start over? No. What did those first 12 years teach you to do? Well, one thing I learned early on, and, and I was around great players. I'll, I'll, I'll just go out on a limb and tell you fact. I mean, fact. I was around a lot of gamblers, uh, and I was around tour players, uh, wannabe tour players. And one of the things that came from the early method of, te- you know, one of the, let's, I'd say the common method of teaching was I learned face awareness really quick, really early on. And, you know, I, I grew up in Fort Worth, so, you know, it was the Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, you know, zone. And, you know, Byron's swing was noteworthy because of his little dip on his downswing and then how, you know, how long it looked, how far it looked like he carried that club head down the line. Right. Okay. So we kind of grew up with that philosophy. And, you know, the the biggest change has pretty much been, as far as, let's just say, technology-wise, you know, I grew up thinking that the path the club head was on was what started the ball flight. Let's just start there. And so – you know, swinging down the line with a square club face of the impact, you know, that that was like the ultimate. You know, that was sort of what you thought. You know, I'm going to get this face to go down the line with a hit, strike it square as long as humanly possible. And that'll be my best shot of hitting it straight or controlling it. And even though that was, you know, technically wrong, I mean, the, the truth is the ball starts where the face is pointed at impact and the pass what causes the curve. It's a little bit opposite. However, because we were so face-oriented and, you know, we thought the path started the direction, if you were playing good, you were probably what I call in a pretty neutral position unless you just played one big old sweeper, you know, sweeper right. shot. Right. And you got to remember, our golf ball, you know, emphasizes a lot. There's no question. The golf ball I grew up playing all the way till probably the mid-early 2000s curved, curved in the air quite a bit more than today's golf ball does. The Bellotta golf ball – well, no yeah, question. and to get the spin down, you guys had to play draws, right? Like pretty good amount of draw to get it. If you need to be sneaky long, you had to hit that like that power draw out there a little bit, right? It's the only way to get the spin down on it. Uh, no doubt. It, it, with a driver, you know, at, at better speeds, you know, good, better player speeds, it was pretty hard to hit a cut, you know, fade. Let's call it a fade where, the, you know, pass across, face is a little open. It was pretty hard to hit a you know, let's call it flat line cut, you know, a, a mm-hmm. cut driver that didn't spin too much. No question about that. Uh, I, I, I kid or I tell guys all the time, cause they'll ask, well, how, how did you, you know, learn to hit a hook or when did you, I grew, you know, when I started, my grandfather hit a 30 yard, 40 yard slice. So that's what I watched, you know, growing up, jerk it inside, lift it over the top, hit a toe slice. You know, he was probably about a 90 shooter. So that kind of was my model. <laughs> when I first started. So I was a slicer early on and whatever pro grabbed me is probably Doug Higgins at Diamond Oaks, you know, grabbed me and, uh, 
you know, just said, you're going to have to learn how to hit this golf ball from the inside, you know, and, you know, hit the inside of the golf ball. And until you duck hook everything, you know, I don't want to see you again. So I learned how to play from the inside, you know, early on. It, it actually, you know, I, I played too much of the inside now, but, and, and did for years. But uh, it, it was interesting. And I heard the other day, so I'll go to my, I'm, I'm old now. You have to bear with me. So I told guys, listen, I, this is my semi-joke. I said, well, how did you learn to hook, or why did you hook it? I said, well, let me explain to you. Where I grew up in Texas, you know, a lot of balls, wood, steel shafts. If we were, we had eight guys there on the first tee, and we picked captains, and you were going to choose choose sides, everybody got to pick a player for your team, your four-man teams. I said, I promise you, if it was windy that day, the fader slicers got picked last every time. <laughs> so right, said, couldn't, couldn't you control the ball, right? Right. Yeah, you learned how to hit a little snipey hook pretty early on so you wouldn't get picked last. And that I'm actually kind of half not kidding on that. And uh, I heard the other day, and it's it's a saying, and, you know, Paul Azinger always comes up with lots of uh, zingers from the zinger. But uh, he said the other day, I heard he, somebody say, or I heard it, uh, he said, you know, one of the things about golf when you learn to play golf is, you know, you have to learn how to hook it first. You know, you got to really learn how to hook it to be a – be a good player the first thing you should learn is how to hook it he said then when you do you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how to not hook it and it's pretty interesting because that there's a lot of truth in that statement uh for for a lot of people oh i i agree right and i I mean i'm 49 years old so i still started off you know being taught hitting low hooks and you know as the equipment changed 10 15 years ago right it's like hmm, i can kind of hit a little straight fall off and the spin comes down so right then you kind of are unlearning yep. everything, you know, everything you were taught as a kid of kind of not hitting as much from the inside. And, how you know, if I'm playing well, like I want to go dead straight and just kind of fall off to the right now, which is so much different than, you know, when I first started off playing and what the ideal ball flight was. I'm, I'm still in that generation that started off with that old equipment, you know, and then mid-2000s sort of you could see, you know, hey, it's it's this is spinning lower as the shafts got better and the heads got better and the ball got lower spin off a driver of hitting that little peeler is not a bad way to play golf. So, but I still agree. You kind of got to learn how to hit a little draw first and then you kind of can still work it back. But isn't it funny now how everything is like, I'm, I'm as anti left as I can be. Like I hate the ball going left. (laughs) Right. And it's, and I promise you for the first five years, I tried to hook everything. Well, it's changed so much. I, I, you know, I, I run probably like 103, 104 miles an hour uh, club at speed. You know, I, I like top out in the 105 range. And I honestly, with these drivers today, my long, the, the best drive for me to hit is actually a slight fade. And that's because it actually has enough spin. <laughs> I actually have to spin it, try to spin it a little bit to keep it in the air because my, you know, 10 or 15 yard hook with a driver usually you know, dives below 2000 RPMs and doesn't carry very well. So it's right. pretty, it's really interesting. Very it, interesting. It is. Uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. You know, like I said, you can almost see it generationally, right? Like uh, our, our home course here in DeKalb, Illinois, Northern Illinois universities team plays there and it's D one. And you just watch the body rotation and the speed of these college kids, you know, hitting eight irons from 170 and, you know, they're not a lot of them. They're not hitting hooks. It's this big, high, towering fade that kind of falls off. And it's like, wow. I mean, I'm not an old, old man yet, but there is such a generational divide between the, what the equipment allowed you to do. It's fun to watch the kids hit it that hard, but it's uh, it's definitely they're taught a different way of how to do it. They're better athletes, and like you said, all the rest of it. But the equipment makes a huge difference as well, no doubt about it. No, 
I agree. I, their technique's better earlier, uh, and they don't get real, you know, typically they don't get in just these awful, you know, positions and bad habits early on if they got anybody with, you know, any knowledge at all with eyes on them. You know, they typically will stop them from doing something silly, including, you know, like the grip. It's, is the grip overdone? Not really. I mean, it's still your only connection to the golf club. So, you know, if somebody's pretty wild with the grip, you know, usually you'll at least question it and, you know, have them at least experiment with some other things, uh, you know, to try to just, to, you know, help them get in a better position. But, no, they, it, it is amazing. Uh, I, the high-speed guys, the, the part that they're still not very good at as, as a group, uh, putting is still putting, number one. And then, you know, that, the high-speed guys have – they tip a lot of them have a lot of trouble uh, from whatever, 120 yards and in. It's still an issue. Yes. Right. They could be better. They could be. They could be better. So I know we were texting yesterday, and you get you did, and I thought this was probably true. When you were on the Hogan staff, you got to spend a little bit of time with Mister Hogan, uh, with some meetings in his office. W- what was that like? Did he ever give you swing advice, or what was sort of those meetings, you know, with somebody of, I mean, of that stature? And what was he like in person? How did you grab any like, you know, I don't know life experience or tidbits from Mister Hogan from spending a little bit of time with him? Uh, yeah. I mean, certain things like, you know, the, one of, one of the first meetings that I, you know, I remember, you know, it would be, they'd be short, you know, it was usually because I was in there with equipment or on the staff. I was on the staff for probably half my career. Uh, you know, when I first shook hands with him and I don't remember, may not have been the first time, but I'd been playing and, uh, we shook hands and he, he, he grabbed my right hand and flipped it over. And, you know, then he looked at both hands and all he, he was feeling for, calluses <laughs> right he wanted he wanted to make sure first of all he wanted to make sure i had some calluses calluses on my hands which i fortunately did and they were in decent places so that that always stood out to me it was sort of like it was the nod of approval that this kid is actually working at it and i'm, I'm okay with that so i'm okay with him on my staff and you know, I dug into the equipment, you know, part of it, you know, more than rudimentarily uh, early on. So, he, you know, we would talk a little bit about equipment, and he was always, you know, experimenting. I mean, he's the he was the consummate tinkerer, and I, I, I don't know if he did – obviously he didn't do as much when he was playing competitively when he, he got it right. But uh, he – I probably got those two things from him the most that, uh, you know, it was just – but as far as a person, I mean, he was – a perfect gentleman to me at, at all times and uh you know very quiet very reserved and uh serious is the word i would use he was serious about golf life you know his company and you know just the consummate professional well you would expect nothing less from mr hogan right i mean that's exactly i've no. obviously never met him but like that's exactly how i picture him being right serious wants you to work hard has a level of expectation in this young man on my staff right and i'm sure you did not want to disappoint mr hogan well you know he wore a suit and tie you know perfectly tailored suit to work and i'll just give you an example his his coat was not thrown over a chair over on the side you know, tossed on a sofa. It was hung and hanging. <laughs> okay. Yes. I mean, it, it's just like the example. I mean, it's like what when he came to the office, even if he was 
a minute late, which would have been a rare, rare, rare feat. He would hang his jacket. It was jacket was hung. And I mean, it's just one more example. You know, you're like, well, that's detail, detail, preparation. I mean, nobody was more prepared. Nobody today is more prepared than he was. Did he do most of it on his own? I think he did. So, you know, he was a self-taught, you know, Ph.D. psychologist. You know, he did it. I mean, that's why he was who he was. And his legacy, and his legacy endures. I mean, it's he's legendary. A, a thousand percent, right? I mean, it's still, it, it's my favorite golf swing. I mean, I'm not athletic enough to make that move, uh, but if you kind of look at the body rotation, it was sort of a modern swing with old equipment, right? Of not a whole lot of hands, played a little fade, but you could play the hard fade, you know, with that equipment. Like if you sort of look at it now, boy, it's it's that swing. You just look at it now and go, that would work on tour today still. No doubt. I, I think the only thing he would have changed was he would have, you know, obviously with the golf ball changes and equipment changes, he would he would have changed his launch conditions and hit the ball higher. I, I think that's really the only thing he would have done. Uh, he just would have hit it higher. He already moved it the right direction, you know, for his primary shot. But, uh, you know, anybody thinks Hogan couldn't draw it or never hit a draw, they're, they're out of their mind. They've never, they've never seen him hit a ball. So he could move it both directions at will. High, low, you know, whatever. His preferred shot matched the equipment of the day. And I think he would have, you know, made the minor adjustments to raise his launch condition. And he was fast. I mean, he was he had plenty of speed and power. And, uh, you know. Oh, 100%. Anyway, right. been, if, if you look at that. Gen- great- yeah, he's still like, he moved it, right? You can just watch those old films. I bet you with that old equipment, he was 112, 114, 115. You know, he had some movement in that that body rotation and lag, right? I, I, ben Hogan would have been a 120-plus person, no doubt. In today's doubt. climate, yes, right? I mean, he's probably that no old doubt. equipment, short driver moving at 115. You know that. So now you go to the you now you go deep dive because you're you're podcasting. So you go, well, why was he such a great player? Where did all that stuff come from? And I still say it goes back. You got to go back and look at his background, and it, which it's been well documented as the best it can be you know we can't dig in there and uh the, the older he got the more interviews he he granted but there was at least a glimpse into the past his his you know childhood and upbringing and you know the the caddy yard and having the privilege to be able to play golf mm-hmm. okay the privilege to be able to play golf it wasn't just something to do it was a privilege for him to be able to you know play golf and he didn't take that lightly, and he took it very seriously. And I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, grew up. And I'm not tooting my own horn, but I mean, we I played. I was fortunate to play. You know, grow up playing some private golf, but I did play a lot of public golf. And there's just this mindset, you know, that gets in. You know, we're all into this, you know, and we should, rightfully so inclusiveness and and all that. But I mean. It was a, really a privilege to go get to play Colonial or Shady Oaks or somewhere, and you didn't take it lightly. It wasn't just, oh well, you know, we deserve to be over there. They, why don't you know, we should be able to play over there. The, the mindset's completely different. I mean, and then you compare it to the other sports, you go, there is no comparison. I mean, basketball, it's a gym with two, you know, two backboards and you know, maybe a net, maybe not a net, but it's still basketball. And we kind of had that attitude with golf. You know, it's not a very good course. It's kind of ratty, but. 
are there 18 holes out there with, you know, cups cut and tee markers out there? And you just went and shot the best score you could. And, you know, until I got later in life and got more spoiled, to, you know, to pristine conditions, you know, I grew up pretty rough. I mean, you grew up playing a lot of rough stuff. I mean, we we played our high school regional. I was in the highest class, would be 6A now in Texas. Our regional event was at a place called, and, you know, bless its soul, it's gone. It was called The Trap in Denton, <laughs> Texas. It had 18, push, 18 push-up greens. The wind blew 50 miles an hour. We were playing in March. And, you know, they wouldn't even be offended. It, there were times it was a dog trap. It was just a dog track. And that's how you got the state, the state high school championships. You had to go through the dog track. And so, I mean, the hardest hole in the golf course was, I don't know, about 13, 12 or 13. It was about 215 yards. You got to remember, a lot of ball days, wind blowing 30. It was a driver. And you go, well, why was the hole so hard? I go, because it was this little tiny, probably 18 yards deep by 12 yards wide, push-up green with a, a cattle pond in front of it. I mean, it was just, it was brutal. So those experiences make you appreciate, you know, when you get to play really well-groomed, you know, nice golf courses, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a different perspective. I don't know how else to put it. But yeah, it was, and there's no well, question. I, I got spoiled like everybody else. I'll, I'll, say, I'll, I'll admit to that. But once again, I don't, you know, never met Mr. Hogan, but you would have to imagine that upbringing and his deterrent. I mean, that, that also, gave, for lack of a better word, uh, pushed him, made him who he was of excellence in everything that he did. From, from a golf, you know, from his own game to that, you know, the designs he did at Hogan, right? Like, it, that that childhood and for lack of a better word, growing up tough, like really tough, tough, yeah. tough. It, it, there's no question that I would have to imagine was that inside burning fire, right? That he it was it was I'm getting myself out of this situation, and it's going to be nothing but excellence. Yeah, and I think he became comfortable. He, you know, obviously, you know, I don't, you know, deep, 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 deep. I don't know, but I will say this: I think it's pretty fair to say that Ben Hogan was very comfortable in solidarity. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I emphasize this all the time with my kids, and it's tough. I mean, if you you have to learn how to practice, for example, and play sometimes as much as you can by yourself in solidarity and learn how to set your own goals, G-O-A-L-F. And that includes for everything from how you're going to think, how you're going to, you know, the shots you play, the swings you make, uh, the approach you take. Because when you go out there and play, I mean, it's like nowadays there's so much, and I love a lot of it. I mean, don't get me wrong, but on the caddy thing, but it's like there's so much emphasis on the caddy and the team and all that. But the the, the bottom line is the guys that really kick ass for a long time, the majority of them are very independent you know, deep down self-confident guys and gals that are comfortable, you know, not only in their own skin, but also being alone because it's pretty lonely out there. I mean, the caddy's there, but, you know, he's not going to hit the shot. He doesn't have to, you know, ultimately make the decisions. So it's very interesting to me, but I, I just, I think Ben Hogan proved, I mean, he practiced alone. He did, he loved it. And I think it's, it was one of his secrets. I mean, that to me is the secret. He figured out the secret, 
by himself alone, not with a camera, not with somebody there. He he is the consummate turning feel into real player of our era, no doubt in my mind. He had guys, I know he had guys, it's, it's documented that he'd bring over one of his best friends or something and say, hey, where am I aiming? Or, you know, am I kind of set up over there? Because he couldn't, you know, you can't see yourself. You know, he did that sometimes. He had confidants that would help him out with little bitty things. But as far as the secret, he found the secret in the dirt on his own. No question in my mind. Zero. I agree with you. And that's why I say look at that swing today and it's still just as pure as it gets. And, uh, right. and guess guess what happens when he hits a bad shot? Whose fault is it? That would be on Mr. Hogan. Nobody else. That's correct. That is correct. He, You know, he took responsibility for his good shots and his bad shots and his his level you know his uh what would the word be his you know let's just say his good shot was he hit so many good shots in practice that he his level of acceptability what was a not not a mediocre shot was quite different than the average guy yes you know he wasn't just you know going out there warming up Go to the first tee with a group, have have a you know, have a five dollar bet, two dollar bet, whatever it was, play around, and then head to the bar. I mean, he, that wasn't his style. So, uh, and that's not the style of most great players either. So they, that but he he raised the bar. You know, he he raised the bar for people around him. I mean, a lot of great players came out of his era, no doubt. He was he influenced so many people. It's not even funny. A thousand and, uh, percent. That, yeah. You know, yeah. And just from the work the work ethic and all that, and it it just it carried on. It carried on. Yeah, imagine what you'd have to do. You watch that guy in the range and go, what do I got to do to beat him? Right? I mean, that's motivating. Well, its own. Right. you know, <laughs> how about Lee Trevino? You know, I mean, Lee Trevino's, he's a good friend and a phenomenal subject. A phenomenal subject. Just almost as interesting, if not more so, uh-huh. than, than Ben Hogan. So, there's another guy. Yeah. I, I promise you, he, <laughs> these guys loved they just love the game. They love striking the ball, and they love figuring it out on their own. And there's a lot to that. And they both owned their golf swings as much as you can. Darn. Well, you're darn right. Yeah. Well, uh, got to ask you about this one. '96, you win the major. You, you know, you're forever a part of, of of history, Mark. And how often, you know, were memories of that weekend? How often do you look at your Wanamaker and just reflect on that accomplishment? Right. I mean, it's. You're part of the history books, and the his, you know, forever. And it's a hell of an accomplishment. It's so hard to win out there and to have one. It's, it's got to be pretty damn satisfying, I'd have to imagine. Well, I don't. I don't very often. So, you know, you know as you get older, you, it's about all people ask you about because, like you said, it's an enduring, you know, it's a lasting win. You know, probably most of my wins only, you know, won't even go through them. But, you know, some of the, the tournaments don't even exist anymore. Or, you know, you won a tournament, and three years later they've changed courses and changed sponsors and moved across town, and it's quite different. You know, the majors are enduring. You know, in my lifetime, uh, probably yours. You know, you're only 49. Uh, you can live another 50 years, and the majors are still going to be the most important, four most important events. Correct. With the Ryder Cup, you know, probably hanging in there behind those, those four. But I – objectively, you know, looked at my career, I'd say I spent four or five years learning how to, you know, manage myself and, you know, figured out I need help or I'm not going to be doing this very long. And that's when I changed my golf swing and got actual help. 
And so that was a huge change. And I won, I started working on it in 87 and I've been on tour pretty much since summer of 83. And I won that next summer in 88. And I probably had a, you know, 12 year run, you know, something like that. Pretty typical. You know, if you really go study it and look at it, you know, most guys that are even really good players, they usually have about a, you know, eight to 12 year run where they play pretty darn good golf for that stretch. And mine was in this, I'm, I'm pretty much the same boat. Uh, you know, I scrape, you know, you'll have, you'll scrape a good finish out here and there, but uh, on, on the front and back end of that, but that was pretty much the run. So that year I'd already won at the hope in, I guess that would have been January. And then I won in Houston in the spring and I had already played a cut decent, a major, you know, before. And, so I was already playing pretty good. I mean, I mean, I was confident in my game, and I wasn't surprised that I was in contention. And as far as majors, you know, my my, let's say, where did you get over the line? And play, you know, I didn't have a great majors record. I played a ton of them, but it's kind of like if I started out pretty good, I actually hung in there. Usually, I had some, I had several good major finishes, but uh, if I was, if I got in there, I hung in there. You know, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, you weren't afraid of the either missed, either missed the cut or did, did pretty well. Right. But in the 92 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, I was in like the second to last group on Sunday. And I love Pebble Beach. It was, you know, like a lot of people, it's, you know, one of, one of my favorite places on the earth. And I got in second to last group that day, and I was playing with Tom Kite, who ended up winning the tournament. And I, I think I parred one and birdie two. So I was right at the lead after – well, whatever that would have been, 56 holes. And that's the day, you know, the wind did blow excessively. I will, I will oh, yeah. say. Uh, that, that day was brutal, right? I mean, to, to... And I shot like, I don't know, 85 or something. And just completely lost it. Never changed game plan. And that m- massive collapse, at least to me, was kind of a turning point. You know, it probably took a little time to get over because I just, you know, reflect and, you know, how did this happen? And, you know, a couple of people flew out to watch and I'm like, you know, good Lord, you know, it was just a disaster. By the time I got to about eight, I was already done. You know, you're leading the tournament or tied for the lead through, through second hole and five holes later, you're toast. Uh, but I learned a lot and, you know, failing miserably on a pretty big stage was a pretty big turning point. And that was in 90, I want to say 92. Yeah, I was 92 open. And so, honestly, you know, I wasn't afraid because I survived that crash. <laughs> Does that make sense? I survived it. Uh, was it painful? Was it, you know, humiliating? All, all, all the above, you know, adjectives, yes. Did I learn a lot from it? Darn right. Darn, darn right I learned a lot from it. So, uh, you know, I credit my, you know, collapse in 892 at Pebble Beach, my my favorite place, you know, to play tournament golf in America to my 96 PGA. Definitely played a, a huge role, no doubt. So when you were on that back nine on in 96 after having, like I said, you know, few wins earlier in the you were com- well, like, I don't know if you ever fully comfortable, but more comfortable, that learning experience kind of got you to, to be able to win a major. In other words, it, a lot of that went in the memory bank, and the more you no probably doubt. get used to it, the more you're like, okay, I'm not shocked I'm here. I'm supposed to be here, so I put the work in. This is what I do for a living. I'm ready for this moment. No doubt. No no doubt about it. I mean, and you, you know, you 
reflect back because I'm trying to pass along, you know, knowledge and, you know, experience more than anything. It's both. And I've played a lot of golf. I'm, you know, I'm a golf, I'm a golf nerd uh, from equipment to, you know, golf course design, teaching, you know, teaching methods, uh, all of it. You know, it's like, it's not, it's almost all consuming and it's why I still do what I do talking about golf. But, you know, one of the things my teacher, Doug Higgins, was one of the things you go, what's stuck? Well, you know, not, what about a swing? I don't have one specific swing thought. I have many that, you know, I've, I've written down and have that came out of the, our years of working together. But one thing was we talked about, which he did, and he wasn't a psychologist. He was just a player that, you know, got close to making it and kind of ended up not playing the tour. was like, look, about being nervous or, you know, unsure of yourself was, he's like, all you have to do, and it's just this was from his experience. He said, you only have to be calm enough to concentrate on, you know, executing your golf swing. You know, does that make sense? I'm gonna try yes. I'm, I'm yeah. simplifying it. Yeah. So this is what he was speaking of is called is now, you know, now I know, obviously, it's learning how to not be results oriented. And it is huge. I mean, it's like to me I did, I've dealt with tons of kids already and tour players, and good amateurs. It is it is honestly the number one. If I had to single one thing out, I'd say, if you can learn, and it takes work, to not be focused on the result or outcome, you're going to end up doing better. No question about it. And when people say, well, no, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't have swing thoughts. I'm like, crap, he doesn't. I mean, visual, visualization, well, I just visualize that swing. That's a swing thought. Right. That's a swing thought, you know. It doesn't have to be some finite, written down, you know, two, two words. But if you're visualizing, and you know, there's a ton of guys you could go on and on about. You go, well, does he have a specific swing thought? No, but you know, you saw Jason Day or Sam Snead. They stood back there, you know, and Sam Snead used to say, "How do you hit a cut?" He goes, "Well, I just sort of think cut." Well, I go, "It's more than that." Okay, the way he set up to the golf ball, the the path of his club head that he wanted to produce to produce that fade he visualized it and he probably rehearsed it if you had enough film to go back right. and go that, he's he's rehearsing that fade man and now he walks into the ball you know a different way than he does if he's playing a draw all those things matter and so if you're in it, this is true in life because i'm guilty of it like everybody else we spend so much time worrying about stuff that hasn't happened yet now you got to be prepared i get all that you know but in general, we spend a lot of time worrying about stuff that hasn't happened yet. And that's the same is true with a golf shot. Same is true. So it's if you knew what you needed to do to hit a decent golf shot to have a reasonable outcome, why wouldn't you just concentrate on doing that thing that makes you have a reasonable outcome? That it's, it's not complicated, but it but it's deep. It really is. So uh, I'm guilty of it. Yeah, so that experience from 92 when the you know when it starts going off the rails, does it is it the would people think like all of a sudden everything starts going fast and the mind starts racing? Oh shit, I'm six behind and Tom Kite's even par and my God, what happened? Versus when you got to 96, were you in that proverbial zone where stuff just sort of slows down and you visualize the shot? Like, was it just a complete, am I describing it right, of the difference of that four years of experience? Yeah, I would say yes. And, you know, learned early on, uh, well, lots of things. But one, you know, 
there, you know, that you know, all these old cliches, you know, there's no pictures on the scorecard. They're not taking the video. Well, they are now. And, you know, they are taking video. And so guys get a little bit concerned with how pretty their swing is. <laughs> how quality was that shot? Because it's like they're going to get judged. And so I would say, you know, now you're moving on, number two. So I'm worried about outcome. I'm worried about the results. I'm worried about what I'm going to shoot today. Before I, right, right when I get out of bed, you know, if I'm not swinging very good, I'm like, oh, my God, could this, could this be a, one of those awful, humiliating, embarrassing days and all my buddies, everybody's going to see it and think I'm a bad person because I'm going to go out and shoot 80? Uh, you know, you have to get over You know, that's just right. part of it. No, it's just, it's so interesting though of, of that learning curve. Right. And you know, I've never, it's all relative, right? Like you you played competitive matches and you know, I'll never play the PGA tour, but you can still get nervous. Right. And then all of a sudden you kind of get comfortable being nervous and the the expectations sort of change. You're like, okay, even if I start off with, you know, I'm one over after four or something like, okay, I'll get a birdie and get it back. And when you're less experienced, things start moving faster and your brain starts going, oh, my God, I'm going to shoot 78 and look like an asshole. And it's interesting as you get better mentally of how you can sort of slow it down, stay in the moment, see the golf shot, execute the golf shot, go to the next hole. And if you get mad, get mad like Tiger for 30 seconds. By the time you're up to that next shot, you're trying to get it up and down, we're going to make a par. Right? Boy, it sounds simple, but it's it's damn hard to learn. I know, I know where I was I was headed a minute ago. It's, it's, again, it's learning, learn You hope you learn it early, but you know, separating, you, you know, your score from your, you know, self worth, mm-hmm. you know, that, that type of stuff. Amateurs and just play for fun. No, it's not as big a deal. They, I think that's more learning, you know, the, the guys that play golf for fun, because we're talking elite golf, you know, we're talking high level golf here for the most part, but you know, amateur golf, I still, you know, they got to go back and learn some of the rudimentary ball flight, you know, laws and, you know, just figure out pretty quick and see it that, you know, man, I, the way I'm delivering this golf club, it's got very little chance of hitting the shot I want to play. And so that starts with, you know, grip, set up, posture, you know, pivot, load, you know, all that. If you do it right, you know, the first half right, you got a better chance of doing the second half right. You know, a lot of it's just going to take care of itself. But the juniors is learning that the juniors, amateurs, kids, you know, college players you know separating their scores from their self-worth is just enormous and uh you know keeping things in perspective and i think that's kind of what 92 did for me is that not really that many people i didn't get asked a whole bunch of times you know you know hey how was the blow up you know what you're you know you're an asshole what a you know you know some people relish in other people's you know train wrecks that's fine I don't, you don't really want to be a those aren't your friends anyway um so you know, I had to learn, you're talking specifically 92, was it a technical problem, a strategic problem, or, you know, something else? And honestly, it was not a technical problem as much as it was I didn't adjust to the condition changes at Pebble. Yeah. You know, where all of a sudden five five was a good score on number nine or five was a good score on number 10. You know, I just kept pressing, 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 trying to make, you know, make up ground in it where it was literally impossible. And, you know, but I got to watch Tom Kite play one of the greatest rounds I've ever witnessed in my life and, you know, handle the conditions beautifully. But you got to remember, he's a pretty conservative guy. Uh, you know, he won, I don't know, 20 times and, you know, could have won more. Uh, but, you know, Hall of Famer. But he's a conservative guy by nature. His game was conservative. His game plan was conservative. He played only to his strengths, played away from his weaknesses. 
And that's exactly what he did that day. He kept it, kept his crap together, and uh, he's got a U.S. Open trophy in his house because of it. And it's because the conditions changed so dr- dr- drastically from really what we'd seen the first, you know, three days there, and even mid-round. It happened started on about the third or fourth hole, so pretty early on. But he made some critical you know, tactical changes and adjustments that matched his mindset. And I got, you know, well over part four, whatever, several over par early. And it was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get back to even par when, you know, honestly, 76 or seven would have been a, a right. really darn good score that day. Yeah. I mean, so his... that, I learned that was, that was different. So I learned a lot. You know what I mean? It was a ton. So you go back and redo your swing because you had one bad round. Are you kidding me? Uh, you know, probably, probably did work, you know, think it was some swing stuff, but truth, tell, truth be told, no, it was, it was mental. I, I, turned, I was a mental midget that day, and uh, it took a while to get over, and I, I was a better player for it. Well, and you got over the finish line, and you have yours as well, along with Mr. Kite. So, right? I mean, you got one. It's it's in the trophy case. Like, you Oh, know, no. It's, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hell of an accomplishment. You know, what you accomplished on winning a major championship, most professional golfers don't. They don't get there. So, you know, it's, it's so cool that you use that learning experience. And then when you were ready in 96 – you jumped on that opportunity, you know, and it's, it's, you're a part of history. I mean, it's, there's very few, you know, they, they don't give those things out all that often and they're hard to win. So to have one, it's a pretty cool accomplishment. They're pro pretty cool. Well, you can say, you know, you're standing there on the eight, 18th tee in the playoff or 18th tee in the, on the 72nd hole. What were you thinking over that tee shot? And I can assure you 100%. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember this day, but I, promise you i had a swing thought i had mm-hmm. a key that i focused entirely you know one thousand percent on i didn't you know it wasn't about well don't hit it over there don't go over here it was a hundred percent you know whatever pressure that le- inside of that left foot as hard as you can and go you know whatever so i i had i was a hundred percent engrossed in executing the shot and you know i had learned the hard way to uh you know learn from but accept the outcome of the shot. Yes. And we're better at different times, you know, better than other times. You know, it doesn't mean you don't you don't have fire in your belly and get mad and, you know, get frustrated and all that. But generally speaking, you know, you stick with that the, the game plan. And uh, mine was, like I said, I learned from my guy early on. It wasn't swing. My, my probably best tip from Doug, Doug Higgins, my best, you know, takeaway from my time with him was that one thing. He says, you have – all you have to do, you can be nervous. You just have to, you know, be calm enough to concentrate solely on the execution of the shot you're trying to play. Yes. And so I, yep. I, I call it, you know, and I, I, you know, we, we've all heard the term get in the bubble. I, I got pretty good at getting in the bubble. I got pretty good at getting in my little bubble. And, you know, you let the, the caddy could penetrate the bubble, bubble with information, but that's it. Then he's back out. So, you know, learning how to get in your own little world, you know, playing with people out there and the crowds and all that it's that that's all part of it so i i but where where i'll circle back around where you learn to get in the bubble that's by yourself that's the solidarity solitary practice focus solitary practice that's where i got it i'm gonna ask you on golf course design i know you've done some work um you know in 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 golf course design has changed right from the nineties to where we're at now. I, I personally like it more now with a little bit more minimalistic design, bringing a little more links into it. I love links golf. It's like my favorite style, but you know, you've, you've, you've done work on these things, you know, oh, there's, there's nothing. I mean, 
you know, I, where it kind of went sideways in the nineties with, uh, you know, massive, uh, waterfalls and, you know, force carries and, you know, not let the land just speak to the golf course of trying to manufacture everything. Eh, I love the more minimalistic link style. And then thank God they're kind of bringing it back a little bit with some of the younger designers and, and, you know, some of these, the new courses or, or, you know, sort of redoing some of the, the old ones, right. Where they did Oakmont and, and stuff like that, taking trees out and giving players more options. But what, what in your opinion makes, you know, a really great golf course, good golf course. And you know, where can it go bad in, in, you know, what are some of your favorite styles to play? Uh, I'm right with you. I'm on, I'm, I'm a Lynx fan, huge Lynx golf fan. Uh, obviously can't, can't get that experience, you know, very many places anywhere near us, you know, within a three-hour flight. But true Lynx golf, you know, it starts with the turf. As you know, Lynx is the turf, not the golf, not the golf holes. It's right. actually the turf, the ground that it's played on. It's Lynx ground, Lynx land. And, you know, it's that sandy, I'm going to call it springy, got a little bit, you know, as, as hard as, our, as St. Andrews is because they get so much play. And when they've been in, you know, it's been – if they're semi-drought conditions, that place gets pretty pretty darn firm. Uh, but typical typical links, because I've played I don't know sixty or seventy links courses over there in the in the British Isles. You know, it's just got this wonderful spring to the to the turf. And the thing that what they were so good at, and you know, it probably doesn't fit the modern bomber game near as much, but it's shot values uh, is one. Uh, number two, they. They weren't worried about something being quirky and it wasn't considered bad necessarily. You know what I mean? Like a push-up green at the end of a long hole. Well, it was just a hard hole. Right. And Blind tee shots. Usually, yeah, they usually yeah. gave you a ground route to get there. It might have been, you know, tough, but they gave you some kind of ground route to get the ball, you know, on the surface. Uh You know, not necessarily close to the hole. That We get spoiled to it in America. Uh, that, you know, every hole, every, every hole and every hole pin position, you ought to be able to hit it two feet from the hole. Well, they don't even subscribe to that in pure links golf. Sometimes a great shot's 40, 50 feet away. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and and it's acknowledged by the knowledgeable galleries there. Uh, so, you know, we get spoiled, you know, if you're this long par three and the second you're sitting at the green, the second group through some guy, you know, stuffs a 235 yard four iron in there two feet. Well, you think that's that's now the standard. So every other shot hit in there, it's outside about ten feet, just kind of average, which is total crap. But that's right. that's the mentality that that you know a lot of our let's just say more ill-informed or less experienced fans, you know, that that's what they come to expect. Uh, anyway, it's it's wild, but yeah, I'm a Lynx golf fan. I, I I think the other thing I'll I can tell you is that we've had to build, had to because of, you know, real estate and other things, but it's tied to golf. We've had to build a lot of golf courses on land that's not golfable, you know, not really golfable. So got to move a lot of dirt, fairways get too skinny. Uh, so a lot of manufactured golf. And although it can be gorgeous and, you know, help sell, you know, million-dollar lots, uh, it's not really, in my opinion, the greatest, you know, not, not the golf experience you want. So, um, we've, we've forced a lot of golf courses on the ground in areas that, you know, just really 
weren't very conducive to, uh, you know, premier golf courses. D- did you bring that links element into the design work that you did as much as you could? So even if you have a site that's not perfect, would you kind of think in that mentality of angles and a little bit more width off the tee and trying to give guys who might be, you know, the ability to use the ground if you can? Was that sort of always in your thinking when you did golf course design or consulting work? It was. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, it, it's I won't say it's often because it can get boring, but when you can put what's called, uh, you know, you can put a green on grade is the word, you know, that's kind of a term, meaning not pushed up in the air. Uh, a lot of golf courses, you know, I'll, I'll use, I'll throw one out there, Wingfoot, and uh, outside of New York City, the famous course, you know, those are all push up greens there. And there's a reason for that. They, they push them up. A lot of times, you know, courses, of course, in Texas or where we used to see them, push-up greens were done because they were built in floodplain. So you, you push them up to get them out of, you know, potential flood. You didn't want your greens getting covered in water with, you know, a heavy rain. Uh, but the other reason they pushed them up was to get surface drainage. And, you know, they push them up that way they could get some fall and get yep. the water off of them by surface and not having, you know, the subsurface drainage that we now have. So, I tried to get greens, I like to call it on grade, meaning, you know, it would just flow in from the fairway onto the green, which yep. is, you see that a lot in Lynx golf, you know, where it's just right on grade and flows right in. And that is conducive to ground golf. And America's played primarily, we play our golf in the air. I mean, there's no question. And, you know, it's just been an evolution. You know, the golf ball goes higher, goes farther, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, most people are, you know, and everybody tries to tell you, oh, put it on the ground. I go, fine, but you can't. I mean, a lot of these golf courses, you literally can't roll a ball onto, you know, let's right. say not half the green. Sometimes it might be 14 of the greens. You can't, literally couldn't, you could not consistently bounce a ball into the green. So, uh, yes, I love seeing it when you can, you know, put the ball on the ground and actually, hey, it might be the right place sometimes to put it on the ground. So, yeah, that's. That's just, but a lot of that's just, it's evolution. It's, you know, building golf courses where, you know, we really shouldn't be building golf courses. And there you go. Is there a couple of two or three links golf courses that of all of them that you've played that just stand out that are just stands the test of time. So much fun. And just one of your favorites, if you could just wake up and go play there, like that's a happy spot to be. Yeah. Uh, Presswick, North Berwick, Royal Dornick, St. Andrews. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I mean, the, the Royal Dornick in the northern part of Scotland would be on my top, you know, four or five list in the world. I mean, it's just a phenomenal place. Uh, you've heard of North Berwick. Oh, yeah. Just up the road yeah. from, from Muirfield. It has, you know, all these phenomenal green complexes that have been copied, you know, hundreds of times all over the world, and rightfully so. I'll copy them. They're templates that should be copied and you know the original redan par threes there there's a baritz green uh it, it just goes on and on and and you know i my design philosophy what honestly was you know obviously several fold but one was you know you really can't design a, a quality golf course for you know a real real high handicapper you just can't do it it's just it's it's insulting to everyone including the 36 handicapper because they probably don't want to be a 36. Okay. Right. Let's just face if they're serious. So that that's number one. Number two is I use shot values. I mean, you got it. Shot value, the longer the hole, the bigger the target. I mean, it's just pretty much got it. Got to be that way. Uh, 
And then you got all your other little things. You know, what's a perfect golf course? It's two opposing loops of nine. You know, that that's it. You get every wind direction. That's Muirfield. That's one of the great attributes of Muirfield. With the exception of one hole, you know, just to link link it together, Muirfield in Scotland is two opposing loops of nine. Uh, you don't start your golf course towards the east. Why? The early starters don't want to be blinded the first two or three holes. <laughs> you don't finish to the west. You have all your par threes go different directions if humanly possible. Your par fives go different directions. So all those little elements start coming in there, and that's what helps formulate a great routing. And you have a great routing. You put a good set of greens at the end of each routing, each, you know, the routing of the course, and you'll probably end up with a pretty interesting golf course. There you go. Yeah, it's, sum it up? I was I was fortunate to go over there this fall for the first time and play, and it, it lived up to the hype. I, I mean, I loved Muirfield. Uh, thought the old course at St Andrews that was my favorite. But you know, think of that design is that old, and you know, no one knows exactly who all built them. But you're exactly right. I mean, we didn't we caught you know St Andrews the old course on a not terribly windy day, it's beautiful weather. But you can see how you still have to hit all the golf shots, and it's so much fun to play it. On top of it, right? It's an enjoyable golf course. It's amazing. It's that old, and it still stands up the test of time. You know, to be that great of a golf course, it's fantastic. Like you know, yeah, you always... I mean, it's it's the ultimate. You know, strategic. You know, strategic. Depending on where the hole locations are cut, but if they you have a pretty tight set of pins cut, a good you know. Let's just call it tournament caliber setup at St Andrews. It it is, it's a chess game. I mean, it is a chess game, and you know, firm conditions, fifteen mile an hour wind. Let's call it the traditional, which would be left to right going out. Yep. It's the ultimate chess game of golf. It's so yeah. you know, and risk reward. You know, you want a better angle. You got to play closer to some you know pot bunkers. Uh, you know, you got to play closer to the tough line, tight line. Uh, you can play left all day there. You know, everybody says, well, go left, left, left. You go left, fine, but you don't have good angles in. Correct. Uh, on a lot of lot of shots. So, uh, ultimate, it's a chess game. And it lives up to the hype, right? Some of the things in life you're always wondering, like, is it going to be that good? Like, God, it's that good. Like, Mirrorfield's that good. Carnoustie, that backside is that good. Like, those courses were, God, what a pleasure to play. I can't wait to get back there someday and do it again. It's It's that good. Yeah, it's that it's that good. If, yeah, that would be the one city I'd move to. You know, for I don't know if I could take twelve months a year there, but I'd, I'd live six months in St. Andrews in a heartbeat. It's funny you say that. Love. I loved it. My wife even loved. Like she's not a golfer, and she's like just the vibe of the city, that you know, the university being there, the people. Like she's like I could, you know, I could do this, you know, five six months a year. I'm like, oh, you're speaking my language of. You know, 10 years go retire over there and, you know, the kids will be old enough at that point and, and, and go do it. Like, there's something magical about that city, isn't there? It's I can't put my finger on it, but there's beyond the golf, that place is special. All right, I'll, t- I'll, give, you, I'll give you a hint. People that don't play golf wear golf clothes still there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got some – there's something about that city that's just special. I, I, I loved it. I mean, I just – I loved it. So the, the, the golf there has a spiritual element. Okay, there's no question about it. There is a spiritual element to the golf in Scotland, Ireland, and really England in a lot of places. So uh, it lets it transcend, you know, a lot of the modern garbage that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It's still, you know, stick, slap your 14 sticks, you know, 
you know, clubs in a bag and go play a stick and ball game, you know, on a ground that's been, you know, a sport similar has been played for hundreds of years. There's no question there's a spiritual element to the game there, and it that lends itself to people, I'll use this term, they demand respect for the game, and they demand it. And, you know, I know there's the RNA and all the guys that are trying to preserve a lot of the traditions are, you know, I'm sure they're they're torn, you know, about having to do certain things, but, you know, to help modernize, you know, the golf or what do you mean modernize? I mean, it's a joke, but uh, it's there's a spiritual there's a spiritual element. Thousand no percent, doubt. right? So, like, on you know, on the first tee, I was fine. You know, I was like, all right, you know, we're playing golf. And then, you know, I'm on 17 and hit a really good drive, and I put it on into, you know, after a really good little three quarter low draw up the right hand side. God forbid, somehow I hit two good shots in a row. I'm walking up to the green. All of a sudden, I start crying, and I'm like, yeah. I've never had tears on a golf course ever in my life, ever. And I don't know, like something just hit me, like walking up 17, you know, I'm not bowing or anything, but I got tears coming down my eyes. Like, what is it about this place, you know, uh, that is so spiritual, right? Then you see 18, you go over the bridge and it's like, there's something there, right? I've never experienced anything else like that in golf of there is something there about being on that golf course and playing it. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. Like just, you know, playing some pretty solid golf. I'm good. Nope. Saw 17, put it on two. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, yeah, okay. This is different. This is a hundred percent different. You know, it's a it's a hell of an experience. It is, and they've done a they've done a fantastic job of not letting it do get too commercialized. Be the word too fancy. You know, I mean, I know they're going to have. It's interesting. You know, they're doing the locker rooms now. The new, you know, they're doing fancier locker rooms. Yeah. You know, you know where they're going. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty can, funny. Yeah, they're going underground, man. <laughs> yeah. Going, you're, we're going to give you all these modern locker rooms and, you know, probably wonderful showers and all this stuff. But guess what? No one's going to see it. Right. You're going to go to the dungeon for that because we're not touching this Hollywood ground up here. No, nor uh, should they. Right. And if it, you know. And, and I noticed they, they, they've already removed the, the approach to the Swelkin Bridge. So. It, yes. I was, you know, I, I was surprised, you know, from being, I was like, why would they even think about doing that? I mean, let it be dirt. Who cares? Right. Like, I want it to be the same as it was forever right it, it doesn't need well, to be improved now on the patio so the patio has been removed already. yes saw that yeah the, well, people were outraged they're like oh god don't change anything right social media that's a victory for social media on that one right i one, had, of, one like, of the few yes. one of the few <laughs> we're even well even like nick faldo was like i don't get this one i want dirt on my toes from that sacred ground like so even you got guys who won there are like pull these damn things out, uh, you know, I think they caught the message kind of quick on that one. So it's, yeah. a, it's a great spot. Well, thank you so much for your time on this. Like I've really enjoyed the conversation, you know, and, and everything that you've seen in this great game. And, you know, it's uh, it's been a true pleasure to, to have you on. I've really enjoyed this. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, the journey continues. So absolutely, we're, we're, I'm in it. We're in it for the long haul. And, you know, as you know, we can, we can relax on certain things, you know, clothing at the course and all that. But, uh, man, we got to hold tight and true to some of the greatest traditions this game, you know, has provided and, and should continue to provide. I'm with you, bro. So, I'm with you. You got it.